I first made it known immediately upon arrival that I would scrub into any case whatsoever. It didn't matter how little, how mundane, but I wanted to be in every case that I could. And my goal was to show my worth and also to learn, to learn as much as possible. Welcome to War Docs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand behind the scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state of the art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. Colonel retired Dr. Peter Napolitano is a professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Washington and at the Uniformed Services University of Health Sciences. Dr. Napolitano is also a maternal fetal medicine subspecialist and is the director of obstetric simulation and team performance. He's been deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan as a general surgeon, where he also established Team Steps programs, training over 5,000 personnel in two deployed theaters of operation. You can read his full bio on wardoxpodcast.com. On this episode of Wardox, we're privileged to welcome Dr. Pete Napolitano, and uh, he is joining us from University of Washington. It's good to talk to you. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much, Doug. I really appreciate it. Dr. Napolitano, so I noticed from your bio that you had graduated from UC Davis with a Bachelor of Science in Fermentation Science. Tell us how someone who majored in that ultimately ended up becoming a military physician. <laughs> well, um, my grandmother owned a vineyard and I lived in California and it's pretty hard not to be associated with the wine industry, uh, which supports a lot of funding at the University of California. But essentially that degree are all the prerequisites to become a physician. When I was young, I was an Eagle Scout. I used to watch MASH all the time and I wanted to be a physician, but I knew it was hard getting into med school. And if I couldn't get into med school, I wanted a job. And actually I had lined up a job with Anheuser-Busch as a brewmaster if I hadn't gotten into med school. So take us down that trip. You got into medical school and you decided to go into military medicine and wound up specializing in OBGYN. How did that happen? When I was a scout, I had a lot of retired military dads that were essentially influenced me. We did a lot of wilderness medicine. We watched MASH all the time. And I really liked the military, but I didn't have anybody in my family in the military. So I got into med school in Chicago at Loyola University. And after my first year, my loans were pretty high. And someone said, he really need to think about joining the military. I thought about it and I sort of clicked at that point. Like, hey, you know, you've always wanted to do this. You've always wanted to do it but now's your opportunity. So I applied for this, the scholarships and all the, all the service branches picked me up. And so then the decision was which one. And when you look at military medicine, the Army clearly has the largest footprint and the most training. As far as OBGYN goes, I was influenced by um, one of my mentors in Chicago. He made it sound like it was the best thing since sliced bread. The thing I liked about it was that you could be a surgeon, and you could be a, a medicine provider simultaneously. So it was a good balance. So you're now a professor of maternal and fetal medicine at the University of Washington. You also did that when you were in the military. Why does the military train people in maternal fetal medicine? And what are the contributions of that field to the deployed theater and combat? 
That's a great question. In the military, if you look at hospitalizations, the number one code reason for hospitalizations outside the deployed theater is pregnant women having babies. Number two is their baby admissions. The military does one thing really good. We, we make a lot of babies. Unfortunately, when women have children, there can be some pretty serious complications. And roughly about 15 to 20% of obstetrics will have complications. These can get pretty life-threatening. And essentially, a maternal fetal medicine subspecialist is a critical care physician in relationship to obstetrics and women's health. And so we do nothing but obstetrics, and we deal with a lot of bleeding. That's one thing that I find has a commonality with Floyd medicine, that hemorrhage and crisis management are critical. And that's something that we do literally every day. So that got you prepared for your first deployment in 2008 with the 86th Combat Surgical Hospital Task Force Baghdad. Can you tell us a little about your role there and maybe a couple of your memorable experiences from that deployment? In the latter part of 2007, as if for those that don't remember, we weren't things weren't going well in Iraq. We were actually losing the war. And President Bush at the time had authorized a surge. Every day when I would come to work at Madigan, we'd see the flag at half-mast because we just had a literally high number of casualties and deaths. So I actually went to my consultant and asked to be deployed in the busiest trauma hospital that I could be in. The one thing that was happening at that time is we were cycling through general surgeons and all of our surgeons at a very high rate. As many of them know, our providers, many of them have been on multiple tours, and we were actually running out of general surgeons. So an obstetrician-gynecologist or a 60 Juliet can backfill or fill in as a 61 Juliet downrange, meaning that we can be a surgeon filler. And of course, I'm not trained in general surgery, but after a deployment, I, I probably could do quite a bit. So that was my my impetus for requesting that position. That hospital was already in, in theater in Baghdad in Ibn Sina. It's a old Iraqi hospital that, with walls that are about a foot thick, made out of mud and clay. And it was about 200 yards across the Tigris River from Sadr City, where Muqtada Sadr was at the time, started a campaign uh, to accelerate the war and basically attack several cities, including Baghdad. During my time there, when I first arrived, I didn't know much about trauma. I didn't know much about general surgery, but I did know a lot about blood, and I knew how to open an abdomen and close an abdomen. So the, I first made it known immediately upon arrival that I would scrub into any case whatsoever. It didn't matter how little, how mundane, but I wanted to be in every case that I could. And my goal was to show my worth and also to learn, to learn as much as possible. My first day there, I was, most people are in sort of a shock and awe situation. You arrive, mortars start going off, and suddenly we have lots of casualties. There's a lot of activity. When I, wa I was standing in our EMT tent and I walked into our trauma bay and someone handed me a soldier's leg and it was, it still had his, his uniform on the leg and his boot. And they said, um, please throw this in the trash. And I looked at him for a second and I was shocked. I, I didn't know what to think. And I, and I thought to myself, well, isn't, shouldn't we at least 
do something more respectful, like maybe take his boot off. And they said, no, it'll all go to the same place. So that was my sort of indoctrination to the theater. But very quickly after that, you get pretty upset, you get pretty mad, and you want to start making a difference. So I jumped right in. When I first got there, I didn't really know very much. So they used me like Mikey on TV. They said, if he likes it, then then it's good. Well, we had a soldier who wasn't doing well, and they were going to uh, sending him from our uh, combat hospital, which is a role three facility to Balad, which is our expeditionary wing of the air force to send to overseas to launch to and eventually back home. So they asked me to escort this patient to Balad and back. I did it. That was really unusual, but we usually didn't have physicians go on as uh, transport missions like that. And this was right after I got there. And about a month before that, one of our orthopedic surgeons was killed in a fireball of a Black Hawk going down. So I was pretty nervous. When I came back home, we were flying back into Baghdad. It was evening. We were flying low, and there's two Black Hawks, and I was in the back of one. And in front of me is a young kid. He's the gunner. And as we were starting to come into Baghdad, it looks like it was like the 4th of July, like fireworks were blown. But it wasn't. There were mortars. And as we're getting close to our LZ and we're landing, the gunners all of a sudden mics in and he goes, no go, no go, no go. And the two Blackhawks veer off and a mortar goes off underneath us. I, well, I said a lot of expletives at that point, but it hit me at that point. Here is exactly what we're trying to do in medicine. This is, and I'm very passionate about teamwork and team training, but you have a junior ranking guy who's a listed kid and he tells the pilot no go and there's no argument. There's no like, hey, what do you mean? They veer off and I'm alive and he's alive. And that's where we want to be in medicine. We want to make sure that everybody's voice is equal when it comes to sharing information. And a lot of times in medicine, that's difficult because of hierarchy. But that that young gunner demonstrated exactly what spouse to, and that's what I, I believe in, in terms of teamwork and team training, which we'll talk about here a little bit more as we go. So that was pretty exciting experience. Um, but I'll tell you one other experience that I had, which also emphasized kind of uh, some of our team principles was shortly within a month of being arrived, we had a pretty bad mass cal. In that mass cal, there were over 45 casualties that came in within an hour. By that time, all three of our major trauma beds were full. Our auxiliary beds, which were probably about 10 to 15, were full. And I got an overhead call to the EMT desk, and I, it was a little puzzling. I was trying to help out down in the, in the ED before going to the OR. And they told me that a Iraqi female who had delivered was coming in hot on a bird and that she was bleeding. Well, anybody that knows a little bit about obstetrics, a woman that's bleeding after having a baby can bleed to death real quickly. She's only got about six liters of blood. She's pumping about 800 cc's per minute to her uterus, and it doesn't take very long to die. And so I looked around, and there were no trauma beds. There were no, I didn't have a team. I looked, and we had a closet, and we had two sawhorses. So the first thing I did is I grabbed an interpreter, and I said, I need you in that closet. Grabbed a medic. And I said, I need a blood pack and I need you in the closet. I needed a nurse, but there were no nurses. So they were all engaged. But just ha so happened the deputy, the DSN was for nursing, was standing there with their clipboard, kind of, you know, keeping inventory of what was going on. And I went to him and I said, hey, sir, 
I need you. I need you as a nurse right now to help me put in a large bore IV. And he had a big, his eyes got real big, but he came in with me. And then I called upstairs to my buddy, CNRA, to come on down. To So they already ran into that closet. We had about 30 seconds. I said, hey, folks, here's the story. Got a pregnant lady coming in. She's Iraqi. I need you to do the following things if we're going to keep her alive. I need you to, one, interpreter, tell her that I, if you don't let me examine her, and that's a big deal for a male to examine a female, then she's probably going to pass away. And then I said, if she gives me permission, then DCN, I need you to put the largest IV you can get in, Medicaid blood and, and CRNA, get ready for us to go to the OR. I said, it's either two things. It's either a uterus that's a tonic with real floppy or it's a retained products of conception. So about 30 seconds later, this lady comes flying in, medics have her blood's pouring off the stretcher. They throw on the sawhorses in the closet. And literally my interpreter talks to her in, in Arabic. I examine her. It turns out she had a placenta and this lady was a rich Iraqi and she had already had several C-sections and her placenta had grown into the uterine wall. This even in a stateside hospital is a major event. This is commonly uh, associated with large volumes of blood loss, hysterectomy, and you can lose a patient. So the interpreter talked to her, I examined her, DCN got the IV in, medic cut new blood, anesthesia ran upstairs, and I went over to the trauma czar and I said, hey, if you don't give me your fourth and last bed, this lady's going to be dead. He looked at me and took some convincing. He kind of followed me upstairs, but well, we had that lady upstairs in minutes, and well, about 25 minutes later, she, her uterus is out, she was stable, and she survived. So that was pretty exciting. One other vignette I can give you is at one point in the war, uh, things got very serious for us, very bad. The enemy was mortaring us nonstop every hour on the hour for 24 hours. They started bricking up the windows. I was involved with the battle update, uh, the battle brief every morning because of the teamwork training I was doing. And the word on the street is that we were going to have to bug out. This is all like MASH. We were convened. All the doctors and nurses were convened uh, in the morning. We already had been in our body armor for about a week. And we now were being told that we needed to have our loaded magazines in our sidearms. And when we weren't in the OR, they needed to be at the ready. And then they went over the rule engagement, which is when we could, we would be authorized to fire. That became really scary. I was thinking, how are we going to get out of here? We're surrounded and we're down in the middle of Baghdad. Fortunately, that never came to fruition, but it was pretty scary. So one of the issues that I remember from being in Afghanistan is the emotions associated with indirect fire. And those for me were intermittent, but you've now described time periods in which you've had constant episodes or constant time periods of indirect fire. How did you deal with the emotions of constantly being under the threat of indirect fire? Yeah. When I first got there, you know, like all newbies, uh, the first time I experienced it, man, I was flat on the floor as fast as possible. After a little while, sort of become immune to it. And, and the old timers that had been there were somewhat immune to it. But you have to deal with emotion. If you don't deal with emotion, you will fall apart. So for us, it's like MASH. When we had downtime, boy, did we party hard. And when I say party hard, I mean we were doing CrossFit. And we were doing CrossFit any place and anywhere we could. Sometimes we would do it twice a day. I remember one day we were out in the 
water pool and we had done our CrossFit and we just finished. We walked away from the center of the courtyard and 30 seconds later, a mortar blew up and there was a big crater and we were in our ducking covers because the sea rams had gone on. So that happened a lot. It happened a lot enough that when I came home, my hearing was impaired. So I have impaired hearing from too much, too many IDFs going off too close to me. But we worked out a lot. I think that really helped. Talk a little bit about team training. What were the issues that you encountered that really led you to refine and further develop these performance improvement initiatives to improve care where you were? So I just so happened to be really fortunate. At Madigan Army Medical Center in Washington State, we're often on the tip of the spear, so to speak. And in 2001, uh, we were part of a landmark study looking at applying aviation safety program to medicine. And the goal was in aviation, it's always dicey. There's always danger and there's a lot of things happening. And the initial program was to try to see if this would work in medicine, in the emergency room, on labor and delivery, and in the OR. And eventually at Madigan, we were we participated with the Department of Defense and AHRQ, Agency for Healthcare Quality and Research, the DOD and ARC put together a program called Team Steps. Steps is a, a focused program to teach four critical facets of what good teams do, high-performing teams like NASA do. And because of my experience at Madigan, I eventually became a sort of a consultant for the DOD and TRICARE management activity. I went all over the country teaching this program on how to do it in place. When I got to Baghdad, they had been there for about six months. And that, that team was really good. They were really good. But when I watched them, and I did a lot of watching, and when I first got there, I saw things that definitely could be improved. I, I remember I'd barely even been there, and I saw somebody call out for a chest tube kit. And about a minute later, three different people showed up with a chest tube kit at the side. And I thought, holy crap, we don't have three extra people to go get a chest tube. So that could be easily resolved by doing closed loop of communication, directing that to an individual, and that individual repeats back what you want. And then we know that they heard the message and they'll focus and it's on one person. So having been a big instructor, not only at Madigan, but throughout the military and knowing this program back and forwards, I went to the command and I asked their permission to try to teach this program in theater. It never been done ever before. And they humbled me. They said, yes, we'll allow you to do that. And so I immediately created a cadre of physicians, nurses, people throughout the cache there in Baghdad. And over about a month and a half, two month span, we then went on to train all 355 personnel, security officers, everybody, you name it, teamwork training. And we did it by doing simulation exercises. And we did it at all days and times at night. So we would do it in the ED, we would do it in the OR, we would do it two in the morning, we'd do it in the middle of the day. And once we were done, we tracked our performance. And one of the ways that we did that is look at patient safety reports before and after during that intervention. When we were done after 13 months there, we uh, looked at all the reports before and after. We categorized the issues 
to the four tenets of teamwork training? Is it a leadership issue? Is it a communication issue, situation awareness, or lack of mutual support? And then we looked at those reports and we looked at the number. And what we found was in the six months afterwards, the acuity for trauma was the same, but the errors that were being made, there was a 67% reduction in communication errors. There were 80% reduction in med errors, 87% reduction in wrong blood type. There was multiple, multiple improvements. And you could say, well, they just got better because they were there a long time. But this is compared to the six months prior to doing the teamwork training. So that got the attention of medical brigade command. And soon uh, even Cena became sort of the training site for all the caches in theater. And that pushed me further to subsequently do training for all deployed assets when possible after that. So as you went through these reports and this systematic process of making things better, what are some specific examples of changes that occurred as a result of this process? I told you about the Iraqi female that we did a huddle. That huddle, for instance, is something that is used for problem solving with a very short period of time. We had about 30 seconds to huddle, and yet we were very successful. I have another example of uh, one of my internists who managed our ICU. And so for those that don't know what a, a role three cash hospital does is they take a lot of times point of injury direct transfers, or they'll take transfers from forward surgical units. And they're often the first site on which uh, they be definitive surgical interventions. But usually surgery is done. Patient is stabilized within an hour. They're already getting transferred to the Air Force Expeditionary Wing. One of my uh, internists who was overseeing the ICU created a huddle that she did with her uh, nurses, her flight nurses, and she mandated that all patients before they hit the flight line go do this huddle with her to make sure that they didn't miss anything. One night, it was pretty late, it's two in the morning, a soldier came in, got out, was already heading out to the flight line, and she didn't get to huddle with him. So she leaves the cache. She goes outside onto the flight line, two in the morning, the wind's blowing, sand's blowing, birds are hot, the Blackhawks helicopters are going. She catches the, the medic and the nurse, the transport team, and she says, we need to huddle. And they're like, you know, Major, it's too late. We got to go. The bird's hot. She goes, no, we need to huddle. She goes, this soldier is on high FiO2. He's on 70% oxygen. I think he needs to have a peep valve in case he goes south in the transport. For those that don't know what a peep valve is, it's something you put in the air circuit that maintains a back pressure in the lungs that try to keep the alveoli open. So she made the medic run back to the hospital, grab a peep valve. They took it on board. The bird took off. It's about 20, 30 minute flight to blood. About halfway through there, the soldier starts having problems. It looks like he's going into respiratory arrest. Anybody been on a Blackhawk before, it's almost impossible to do a resuscitation. So they start bagging him um, and he's not getting any better. Now, and he made it and he survived. Now, she came back, the flight nurse, and she told us about that. And the first thing I did is I sent that message to Medgate Command. And within 24 hours, all birds in Afghanistan and Iraq had a peep valve on board. I can't tell you that that soldier survived because of that. Probably didn't. But the power of that one physician doing that one type of huddle and then following through with that had dramatic impact 
not only just locally, but throughout both theaters at the time. And that's just one small example. I've got hundreds of these. But using tried and true measures, things that organizations like NASA uses, which are communication tools, huddles, briefs, debriefs, closed loop communication, leadership. One of the big things I really focus in on what is your job as a leader during a crisis? And that's not, there's a lot of things that go along with leadership, but teamwork, there are very specific responsibilities. So we focused on all of these things in our simulation drills. And like anything, if you drill where you fight with the people whom you fight, you're going to do better. Are there any particular images or memories that just come to mind that kind of encapsulate some things that you experienced in that deployment? Oh, there are a lot of things I that do come to mind that I try to forget. There was one that was really a memorable. We had a soldier who was shot in the chest and he wasn't wearing his, his body armor and the round went right through his sternum into his ventricle. The medics brought him in, coding him, and we got him and we threw our IOTV in. We reproduced him with our Belmont Rapid Infuser in three minutes. We did CPR. We were in the OR. We did a trap door on his chest. They had me pumping his heart until my CT surgeon could jump in. And we oversewed that guy's heart and put him back together. And we thought for sure this guy was going to have pretty bad brain damage. That guy woke up the next day and he asked the question, like, where am I? And at that moment, I, I thought to myself, man, we are bad. We are badass, so to speak. Just bring it on. We'll take it. I don't care how bad or wounded the soldier is, we'll take it on. And it's an adrenaline rush. But the one thing I want to point out is that I've never been so fortunate and so lucky to work with so many people who are focused on one thing, making people's lives better. I will never, ever doubt or, or that's probably the best experience in my whole life being associated with those people. And that's something is very rare to find here in the United States. And not because we're any different here, but the circumstances aren't the same as it being in a deployed theater. I think one of the things for those of us that have been there in the height of the war, we realize that not everybody is going to make it. And one of the things that stands up in my mind is those people who didn't make it, those soldiers that didn't make it. And you had mentioned angel flights when we talked before. And could you just kind of tell us about what that experience was and what that meant to you? Pretty tough. So for those that don't know, when a soldier doesn't make it, we go to great efforts to get that soldier home. And they create a flight to pick that soldier's remains up as soon as possible. And it doesn't matter what day it is, what time it is, if it's possible and it's not dangerous to, to fly a bird, then that soldier is expedited to get home. When we would lose a soldier um, and an angel flight was coming in, it didn't matter what time of day it was. It didn't matter where you were. If you weren't in the OR, if you weren't actively doing something, your role was to go out to the flight line. And we would line the flight line, sometimes two in the morning, sandstorm, and we would salute as the remains pass. And then the remains on the bird, and then we'd take it away. We would be very, at that point, no one talked. People walked back to the hospital, and we went back to work. You'd mentioned one of the stories of being an OBGYN and the deployed experience. Tell us about some specific 
other cases that you may have encountered that were unique in your skill set were able to help those patients? One thing that would commonly happen with an IED blast is that it would take out a huge chunk of the upper arm and would also take the legs off of the soldier. So to save the guy's arm, we would commonly have to do a brachial reanastomosis. And the vascular surgeon would always need someone helping him. So I would jump in and help him. We Initially, I learned how to harvest the saphenous vein off the back of the guy's leg. And then once we had the graft, we would go over and I would help him reanastomose that graft. Well, there were days where I can remember us doing four of those procedures in a row. And we started doing them. We had done them so many times that I became pretty proficient at it. The way that you anastomose the graft to the artery is very similar to the way you reanastomose a fallopian tube if, if they've had a tubal ligation. The principles of surgery are the same. They're just in different parts of the body. The basics that you learn are no different. The suture may be different, the anatomy may be different, but at one point, the trauma czar had me doing brachial reanastomosis with the vascular surgeon checking in on me. And I can remember one day we had a visiting general surgeon from another cache and the trauma czar brought her, you sit and watch Pete. He's going to show you how to do this. And you just do whatever he tells you. I thought that was pretty humbled that he felt that way about me. There was another day, I love CT surgery. I would be with my CT surgeon, Mike Meyer, anytime he operated. And we were in this guy's neck. He had a, a gunshot wound to his carotid. And Mike was trying to suck the blood in a real fine, one of his fine suckers, that he, his instruments that he had to get a very pinpoint aspiration so he could oversew and he was struggling and the instrument somehow got contaminated and we didn't have another one readily. And he was now getting real frustrated. So I said, Hey Mike, just give me a chance here. I might be able to help you. So what I did is I asked for a pool sucker. So for anybody that knows anything about surgery, a pool sucker is a sleeved instrument with lots of holes and it has a center cord, which is a real fine, thin barrel inside this over sheath with the holes in it. So I said, give me the pool sucker. Let's take the pants off, essentially the outer layer. And that'll leave you with this long, skinny sucker. And Mike said, okay, I'll give it a shot. And sure enough, it worked perfect for him. And I think he looked at me thinking, holy crap, here's an OBGYN. And he had a trick and the trick worked. So I did that with anybody. I would do that. I would work with the orthopedic surgeons. I did, I put in external fixators and humeruses. I put bolts in calcaneuses. I did lots of amputations. I worked with a vascular team. I worked with Booker King, one of the best trauma burn surgeons that is around in the military. I did tons and tons of burn cases with him. And the commonality is that OBGYNs have to work under constant stress and it's usually never easy and quiet and most of the time it's a lot of bleeding so all these things downrange are very similar a lot of stress it's always emergency lots of blood so were there any times where they were super happy to have a OBGYN there when something came in that was OBGYN specific <laughs> yes oh, absolutely um i think we delivered 21 babies um the, a lot of Iraqi women didn't trust locals and they'd show up on our doorstep 
and we couldn't labor them. So we would C-section them. So we did a lot of C-sections. I had the wife of the judge who uh, tried San Hussein and she came in and the ED doc said, hey, I have a pregnant woman here and the baby's measuring about six or seven weeks, but it's surrounded by fluid and she's got severe abdominal pain. Well, she had a ruptured ectopic pregnancy. And essentially, when we opened her up, it was just like doing a trauma case, packed her off, got the topic out. But it's surprising my colleagues would be so concerned about doing a case like that. And yet they could do things 100 times much more worse. It was just the fact that they had never done it. So, yes, we did a hysterectomy on a civilian DOD worker, essentially had a fibroid that she was prolapsing through her uterus and blood out probably about eight to 10 liters of blood with uh, transfusion. So we did a lot of stuff like that, but that really wasn't my primary reason for being there. You also deployed in 2011 with the 101st Airborne Sustainment Brigade. Tell us a little bit about that mission and some of the memorable experiences you had during that deployment. Yeah, so that was a really different situation. We were in RC East with uh, General Petraeus right there. My role was to oversee 30 combat medics, half of my army and air force and the combat medics role were to go out inside the wire and escort, um, convoys, uh, supply convoy. And we got there and it was, it was prior to Osama bin Laden being captured. We would get mortared maybe once a week and no, not, nothing too bad. I was also assigned as the, the scene affairs officer there. And I'll talk about that here in a second, but my job uh, with my medics was not only to provide services locally, but to have them train to go outside the wire. Well, it, what, what happened was um, when uh, in May of that year, when the SEAL Team 6 got Osama bin Laden, the things started heating up really fast, really bad. Each convoy would get ID sometimes three times, four times in one mission. My medics were under, I mean, these are young guys, you know, 17, 18-year-old kids, and commonly they'd be one or two medics on a mission. So we would do drills. We would do drills just like I did in Baghdad, but we would do drills with them inside the wire so that they would be better outside the wire and, uh, and teaching them how to huddle and to pull soldiers around them, to be force multipliers and to stay cool under pressure and to use the leadership qualities that we talk about. And it was amazing. It's truly amazing to see these young individuals rise to the challenge. A lot of them suffered. I remember one of my medics, she was Air Force. She was about 90 pounds. She was all blonde. Everybody looked at her thinking, hey, what's this little 90-pound blonde girl going to do? She's not going to be able to be a medic. And she went out the wire. The MRAP behind her, the end of the convoy, was disabled. And so suddenly her MRAP was the last vehicle in the convoy. Not a good position to be in. One of the enemy with an RPG fired at the back of the MRAP. It pierced the door. She happened not to be sitting in the seat that she was supposed to be. She was sitting on the side seats, and the RPG went through the seat that she was supposed to be sitting in and then ricocheted within the vehicle, causing the vehicle to crash and overturn and start on fire. Combat Barbie, you would think, would then exit the vehicle, but no. All 90 pounds of her, who's now bleeding and uh, from from top to toe, is trying to extract the driver and her colleagues. And they had to literally pull her out 
on fire and bleeding to do what she was doing and trained to do. And that was pretty rewarding to see that. So you had quite the, the military career, and now you've transitioned to the civilian sector. What do you miss the most about military medicine? Uh, the camaraderie. I mean, there is something about military medicine where you raise your hand. If you need anything, it doesn't matter if they're physically next to you or somewhere across the country. Your comrades in arms will immediately jump to your side help you. I miss the spray de corps. I miss the decision-making process. A lot of times in the military, decisions are made, and maybe we don't agree with them, but they're made. In the civilian world, indecision plagues the civilian world. They can never make a decision. And when they do, it takes them forever. And then there's a lot of problems. So a hundred years from now, when they pull this podcast out of a time capsule and your family in the future listens to it, what is something that you'd want them to hear about your career in military medicine? My pathway to get to military medicine was circuitous. It wasn't, there are a lot of providers that start out at West Point and go straight through. If I could go back in time and do it differently, I would. <laughs> I would probably go to West Point. I would want to immediately go into general surgery and I'd want to be a trauma surgeon. It's, uh, I think, one of the most rewarding things I ever do. But really, um, the, the take-home message is that by giving of yourself and being a part of a team that is focused on one thing, that's saving lives, you will never have anything more rewarding in your entire life. And I am so grateful that I have had that opportunity. If I was ever asked to do that again, even now, if they said, we need you like in Lebanon, we're going to rapidly pull you back. I wouldn't be going, uh, maybe, maybe not. I'd be, when am I leaving and how fast can I get ready? Because there's nothing like that. There's nothing like that. And it's one of the most gratifying things that knowing that when I leave this place, that I've made a difference and I did it with people that will be my brothers and sisters for the rest of my life. Well, we've really enjoyed the privilege to speak with Dr. Napolitano. And uh, we just thank you for sharing your experiences and insights with us. And thanks for your service. It's really been good talking to you. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of War Docs, the military medicine podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please rate and review this podcast and share our show with your contacts on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests and how to become a member of Team Wardocs on our website, wardocspodcast.com. That's wardocspodcast, one word, dot com. Thanks so much for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, War Docs has you covered. Spread the word.